right, y'all can have a seat. Turn in your copy of the scriptures to Colossians chapter 4. Sermon text this morning is Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6. We are on the tail end of wrapping up our, we can say, slow walk through the book of Colossians. Uh, this is two verses, so this is, this is a, it's a big week, right? Uh, but since we make it our practice to try to preach relatively short sermons, and that's a relative thing. Um, we do also try to make it then a practice to sometimes have smaller chunks of scripture that we can spend more time in, and that's the case today. But in, in every way, we still expect, and, and our hope is that, that God would use the word this morning to, to reorient us, right? To reshape us, to change us. And Chris mentioned, this is a really practical text. And so we've got a lot of explicit gospel that's gotten us to this point that we're not going to miss in context, but it has some, some sharp words for us in the way that we spend our time and spend our lives. With that hope, with that expectation, let's pause again and pray for just a moment. Father, this morning it is our joy to sit ourselves under um, the authority of your word. God, we pray that the authoritative word would instruct and rebuke and correct, train us in righteousness. God, we think and hope and pray and expect that you would use these ordinary means of grace in an ordinary gathering to, to make us look more like Jesus. And so would you do that supernatural work today? Through your word, would you make us more like Christ? It's, that's our hope and that's our prayer in his name. Amen. As you have your copy of the scriptures open, I don't know if it was like this in your family, but I come from a long line of folks that uh, take about five, ten minutes to say goodbye. My, my grandmother, my mama, Jean, was like this, Jean Cordell. Um, I knew that I, I had to start initiating the goodbye sequence at least a solid ten minutes before it was actually time for me to be out the door. And so we'd be sitting there and, and there'd, there'd be a motion, right? I'd, I'd go through the like two-handed thigh slap. Well, I hate I've got to leave early. Subtext, I've been there four hours, but I, I think I need to get on the road, right? So you, you go ahead and you stand up, you start moving towards the door, but the, you know, the conversation moves with you and that brings something else to mind and you're still talking and you get to the door. And for us, I'll explain our routine, there, there'd be a, a, a hug at the door and a goodbye and then, then it would begin the garage sequence and we'd be moving then through the garage and, and still talking and catching up. And as I say this, I miss it so dearly. She's been, she's been gone for four years now and, and what I wouldn't give to go back and spend hours and hours there. But we'd move through the garage, we'd continue conversation and then there'd be a garage goodbye at the end of the garage and so you'd, you'd head to the vehicle and you would think, okay, I'm gonna get in the vehicle but you're actually not, you're just gonna crank the vehicle. And so you start the car, you get in, and there's, there was a sequence with the door open, and then there's a time you close the door, but you roll the window down so you can continue conversation through the window. And then finally, the window is kind of the closure, the goodbye, the last hug, and then you were on your way. But I knew I had to start winding down. There was a, there was a sequence of final goodbyes and waves, even as you're pulling out of the driveway she would stand at the, the end of the drive, right, and, and be waving and, and goodbye. I think this section in Colossians is, is Paul moving through the garage, 
right? He's, he's finishing up what he's had to say. He's walking to the car. He's winding down the letter, and he does the same sort of thing, right? There are, there are things that he wants to say as he knows the closing sequence is happening that he hasn't said thus far in the letter. And so this doesn't give it any more important weight. It doesn't carry any more authority as the rest of it, but it's important because this is one of the last things that he says, one of the last commands. So with that in mind, if you know the book at all, what do you expect that the last command of Paul would be in the letter to the Colossians? He spent so much time exalting Jesus calling us to follow Jesus in holiness, talking about the supremacy of Jesus in the gospel and the silliness of all these other false hopes. But where does he finish? What's his last command? Chapter four, verse five, read these two verses. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. For all of the glorious gospel detail he's given us in four chapters of the letter so far, three and a little bit, his final word is this, our lives should make the gospel compelling. All that he has said about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and our place in Christ boils down to this final goodbye, head out the window as he's driving away. And, and, and here's the, the last command, the last piece of the, the letter. He says, our lives should make the gospel, this gospel I've just laid out for you, compelling. It should be evident. It should be demonstrable. Our, our walk, right? Our, our, our walk should show the power of the image of the invisible God that he talks about in chapter 1, verse 15, in the way that we walk with confidence through trials. Jesus is the one for whom and through whom all things exist. Our, our forgiveness should demonstrate the truth that he's now reconciled us together in one body through his body of flesh by his death, chapter one, verse 22. Our patience should, should show and demonstrate that, that our record of debt has been set aside, nailed to the cross, chapter two, 14 and 15. He says, we shouldn't be so far removed from, from outsiders so as to be invisible or to have our head so high in the clouds as to be untouchable. He says, we make the gospel visible. We make it evident. Our lives should make the gospel compelling towards outsiders. We walk in wisdom, demonstrating the power of the gospel with our lives. Now, at the outset, I want you to see that we get things backwards if we see this command to separate from sin as a command to always separate from sinners. So I wanna set it in this context that he's given us in chapter three. He said, put to death therefore what is earthly. Where? Is this a call to some murderous rampage to take care of the sinners in your life to end them? No. He says, you be murderous with what? The sin in you. Put to death therefore what is earthly in you, not just around you. You put sin to death in you, not outside of you. So this command to walk wisely towards non-Christians means that we exercise biblical wisdom with these associations. And here's where he is specific, but not too specific. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. What's wisdom? It's, it's knowledge applied. What I know about God, what I know about his character, his works, his gospel, 
I'm applying that. We like rules more than we like wisdom. Tell me what club to be a part of. Tell me what tribe to join. Tell me what hobby to have. Tell me what music to listen to or movie to watch. Tell me, give me rules. Wisdom's hard. Wisdom means I've got to take knowledge and apply it. That's what he says. As he says, put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you. He says, exercise wisdom as you walk among those who are dead in their sins outside of you. He's calling us in this instance in chapter 4, verse 5, to have purpose as we continue these relationships. But the first thing I think to just go ahead and, and jot down and remember, and there's a spot for notes on page 10 if you're a note taker. The first thing to see is that we're not called to form this this holy huddle, right? To separate ourselves and to cleanse our circle. And so insofar as as everything that he's given us about the way that we live holy lives after the pattern of Jesus has culminated in putting to death what's earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, you put those things away and you put on compassion, kindness, meekness, humility, patience, forbearance, forgiveness, love, But he doesn't say that you only practice these things among those who practice these things. He says you walk then with wisdom as you walk among and toward outsiders. Our model here, we don't have to go far to find, right? Our model is is Jesus. Jesus is maligned for what? For cleansing his inner circle? No, for eating with tax collectors, sinners, People of ill repute, not because Jesus wanted to be progressive or trendy or a bad boy, but because he came to bring grace to sinners. Because he came to, to, to dwell as the glory and, and person of God in flesh with people who were far from God. So to bring grace to sinners, he had to do what? Be with sinners. He was maligned because of his relationships with sinners. So as Paul says, you putting off sin, 3.5, putting on the character of Jesus, 3.12, you walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Shape your relationships, not by the absence of sin in other people, but in God cleansing you and sending you with the news of grace to those who are outsiders, who are outside the covenant promises, who are outside of fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. This reminded me of a a sermon that I listened to way too many times from the early 2000s, probably three or four. um, It was Tim Keller at a Desiring God National Conference years and years and years ago, the supremacy of Christ in a postmodern world. And he made the observation in his sermon that in previous eras in church life, and he was thinking through mid-1900s, mid-20th century, people had the religious furniture of deity, Sin, redemption. And so the work of evangelism was to go into their house and help them redecorate. You were the interior designer who said, okay, deity is, is here. Sin is here. Redemption, redemption goes best here. They had the basic furniture that you needed to work with. You, you were just rearranging it in biblical categories, but they were familiar with those categories. Even in 2003 and 4, Keller said, people don't have those same categories today. We, we aren't interior decorators who are going in with someone who has a general understanding of the biblical definition of, of God. 
We're not interior designers who are tidying up the lives of people around us. We're movers bringing in a whole new set of furniture. We're saying this is who God is. This is who you really are. And yet this is what God has done for you in Jesus Christ through the gospel. We're, we're bringing ideas that, that they're way less familiar with now than, than people were decades ago. And that means that our neighbor's lives might be outwardly opposed to the things of God, either from arrogance or from ignorance, but that we aren't welcome to come in and assume the role of housekeeper and designer. Instead, you and I are called to gracious, engaging lives that love the person where they are and not where they might be. We show Christ's love when we meet our neighbor with the invitation of the gospel from a place of understanding and love that's willing to walk up close to them and not keeping them at a distance. Too often we expect the people that we're sharing the gospel with to kind of live like Christians, to to be somewhat moral. And, And again, we could have that expectation when they had the furniture in the right room at least 50, 60, 80 years ago. But that's just not the case anymore. And so what our hearts tend to do is kind of begin to hold our nose and go, man, I just can't be around that kind of person. I can't put up with that kind of ideal. They support things that I could never, absolutely ever, ever support. And that's true. Yet we don't then distance ourselves from them. We walk in wisdom, knowing when and how and what area of our life that relationship should be in. But we're still walking in gracious engagement. We're not moving away from someone because they're not acting like a Christian. We're understanding, okay, they're not acting like a Christian. You know why? They're not a Christian. They don't have a new heart. They haven't seen and believed and started to follow Jesus yet. So they ought to be selfish and proud and arrogant and boastful. They ought to be those things. And so if we're going to bring the message of the gospel to those who are outsiders, to those who are far from God, we we can't seclude, right? We've got to be near with wisdom that says this is what God has done. And y'all, we're bringing in a whole new set of furniture, And that doesn't happen quickly. We can't have an expectation that, all right, I began sharing the gospel with this person two weeks ago and they're not converted, so clearly they're doomed. No, we're we're bringing in lots and lots of new ideas and furniture. We're trusting that the Holy Spirit would make these things true, open their eyes, give them a new heart, but that doesn't happen on our timeline. And so this walk of wisdom towards those who are outside of Christ is a walk that that may not be like the, on your fitness app, right? I got my half mile in. That was my walk of wisdom. I'm done. (laughs) Maybe that you go into the marathon and then the ultra marathon and then the 100 miler, (laughs) the 200 miler, and you look back months and years and you still maybe aren't seeing the, the fruit that you want. Here's where you're exercising wisdom in what you're doing, but you're not you're not giving up either. You're, you're patiently bringing the news of Christ, the wisdom, the love of Christ to, to bear with your life, making this news compelling as someone who's demonstrating what Jesus is like. 
coming near to sinful people with love and care and, and genuine interest. This next phrase, if you, if you look down, gives you a, a bit of the motivation, right? So he says, not just walk in wisdom towards outsiders, but here's what it looks like. You're making the best use of the time. The phrase translates from a more literal buying the time. You can think about it that way. Redeeming the time, right? That's a, it's a carpe diem idea, right? I'm seizing the day. I'm using what I've been given. I thought about it this way. We, we rent out our gym space, right? For sports groups through the week. We've got one group that will book and buy, reserve, give us the, the money because we don't do cancellations or changes and they'll pay for lots and lots of time. And I'm really grateful for that. And then some of it they just don't use. They'll look in like two days out of the week and they paid this much money to use the space, but they ended up not using it. I'm, I'm okay with that. Again, because there's, there's no refunds, right? There's no cancellations in the way that we're doing it. They, they, they paid for it. They booked it. They just didn't use it. I think the picture in Colossians 4 is that we sometimes foolishly do the same thing. We're not redeeming the time. The time has been given to us, and yet the reality here is that it it wasn't us who bought it. It's not my debit card that's charged as I redeem the time, right? I have been bought, what, with a price, and I'm not my own, but I belong to God through Jesus Christ. Redemption is this picture that we have been bought, and with us, all of our life, every breath, every day, every moment has been bought with the price of Christ, purchased by his blood. So we make the best use of the time he's given. So look at it then through that light, right? Walking in wisdom toward outsiders, making, redeeming the time that, that God has given us in Jesus Christ. Reminds us that we, that we have a redeemed purpose, that we have a reason for doing what we're doing. The life that we live now, we live by faith, Galatians 2 says, in the Son of God who loves us and gave himself for us. We live to glorify God and enjoy him forever, even and especially among those who don't yet know him. And we don't take this idea of redeeming the time and drive into this radicalized, okay, did you take a nap this week? Why'd you waste it? He gave you breath and you napped, right? Did did you not do a sufficient amount of street preaching this week? Mm. How dare you, right? We don't repent of of every nap that we take. It, It means that we redeem the time by living a compelling life of repentance and faith, that we see all of our life as purchased and bought. And so all that we do in all of our rhythms, which absolutely has to include a nap, and and play and rest. But all of those rhythms are redeemed. Every bit of us. The goal here is not necessarily radicalization. The goal here is that we would see every bit of work and play and home and family and everything that we do through this lens. Our time is redeemed. Our purpose is redeemed. And so not all of us, we're we're not all called to move far away. We're not all called to do something dangerous, but we are all called to live among outsiders in a compelling way with a faith that engages, a faith that welcomes, a faith that speaks about the power of the gospel and the love of Jesus to make his salvation clear. We're to live lives that are compelling 
So the idea amplifies here as you turn into verse six. He says, let your speech always be gracious. And then he uses this phrase, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. What does gracious speech look like? This might be my last chance to do it, and I've already done it once, but what does gracious speech look like? Look back at the context. What are you to do? You put on the character of Jesus. Gracious speech looks like compassion, kindness, meekness, humility, patience, forbearance, forgiveness, love, all the things that he said you put on funneled into this idea that your speech gives grace to those who hear. Gives kindness to those who hear. Gives, out of your humility, gives patience to those who hear. Gives love to those who hear what you are saying. Gracious speech means that we're approaching our conversations with people who are far from Jesus, with the love of Jesus evident in our words. All of them. All of them. Especially people who don't act like Christians because they're not Christians. This is where the, the sword of our mouths is, is at least blunted, very much shortened in the way that our, our niche reality right now is to just go to battle with people that see things differently than we do. Think about issues differently than, than we do. And we contend for what we believe. We contend for the way that we understand issues, especially issues like the sanctity of human life. We'll contend for those things night and day, life and death. However, people that see that issue differently from us are not our enemies. They're far from God. They don't understand the gospel. And so... Our move then is not to go, well, you, you get far away from me. Our, our, our move is to clearly, articulate, out of, out of great conviction, to explain what we understand that to be, but to, to walk in, in wisdom toward them, to have speech that's gracious and seasoned with salt. We tend to hear salt and we think back to Jesus, salt and light. I don't think that's the illusion here. I think this is not an allusion to Jesus' salt and light in as much as it is the Spirit's way of saying we shouldn't be bland and unengaging and boring. And I've got a few commentators that I'm standing on to help me with that with conviction. I want you to think about it this way. If you go over to somebody's house for the first time, somebody that you don't know all that well, and they put this plate of food in front of you and they thank God for it and you start to dig in, are you then going to immediately say, you got, got some spices in the cabinet. I appreciate this chicken, but this is some bland chicken. Have you got some Mrs. Dash? Have you got some Lowry's? Like, have you got something I can put on this? You're not going to ask for the salt and pepper right off if you don't know them that well. What are you going to do? You're probably going to eat the bland chicken, right? You're not going to say, do y'all have anything to make this better? Now picture yourself in a boring conversation. You haven't said anything in like... 20 minutes and they're just droning on and on and on about something that you have very little interest in. Are you stopping them and saying, hey, can we flavor this up a little bit? Can we, can we spice up this conversation? Can we get salty, right? Can we make this more engaging? Probably not, but that's the idea here is that our speech is seasoned with salt. It's engaging, it's, it's compelling. N.T. Wright says, Paul knows that a tedious monologue is worse 
than useless in evangelism. I read that and I went, ah, okay. All right, thanks, Dr. Wright, for convicting me in preaching and conversation and all those things. He says, a tedious monologue, right? Just telling somebody, here's the truth, here it is, here's the way it ought to be. He says it's it's worse than, than useless in evangelism. He goes on, Christians are to work at making their witness interesting, lively, colorful. It's the idea of this salty speech. And at the same time, to ensure that they have thoroughly mastered the rudiments of their faith so that you may know how you ought to answer everyone. So the content of our message is the same. It's the gospel of Jesus. Christ died for our sins. He's been raised. He is my place of hope and confidence, and I want him to be your place of hope and confidence. That's our message, but our, our, our method, the way that we communicate that, ought to be, N.T. Wright says, interesting, lively, and colorful. Another commenter, James Dunn, says, Paul envisions a church expected to hold its own in the social setting of the marketplace, in baths and, and meal table, to win attention by the attractiveness of its life and speech. Maybe that scares you. That, that scares me a little bit. It does. I don't feel naturally interesting, lively, or colorful, right? And so to think, oh my goodness, okay, now I've got to be this life of the party evangelist. That's not me. I want to be the corner reading a book evangelist, right? I, I, I want to be out of the way with my mouth closed, having a conversation with one person who's a lot like me and, and not in the, 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 the center of the room. I want more flavorful speech, but don't Don't make me get out of this too much. But again, I want to draw your attention back to 312, right? I want to draw your attention to gracious speech that is what? Compassionate, kind, meek, humble, patient, forbearing, lively and interesting and colorful aren't in that list, are they? But genuinely caring about someone is. And I think if that intimidates you, this idea of, okay, how in the world am I going to be compelling? Think back to the people that you enjoy talking to the most. A lot of ways they're compelling because they they love you. They care about you. They're asking how you are. They're they're compelled to, to love you because they care. The idea here, I think it's helpful for us in application. I'm gonna say it carefully because I mean something specific by this. We ought to be our authentic self, right? Not pretending. Our authentic self ought to be repenting and believing the gospel in such a way that listens, that loves, that's gentle, that's compassionate, that's humble. That's interesting. That's love that is interested in other people. And so our speech that would be gracious and give grace to those who hear how kindness and meekness and humility, patience, forbearance, love, The seasoned with salt is this genuine interest that we have, this love that we have. Now that, that is commendable. That is what gains a hearing, right? And so that's why he ends with that last phrase. If you look at it, he says, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Our gracious speech is to bring the gospel to bear in the natural flow of life. Ups and downs. Highlighting how we ourselves are finding the hope of the gospel to be true and real, even in the midst of difficulty or or darkness. 
how we ourselves are repenting from our sin and trusting completely in Jesus and genuinely interested to see that that person also finds the love and hope and confidence and joy that we have. But when it comes to walking in wisdom, when it comes to gracious, salty language that is attractive, I think that's a good place to land is to be careful not to be artificial. To be careful to be your authentic, repenting, and believing self. That's, that's difficult. In as much as the, the compelling command of interesting, lively, colorful, that's, that's hard for a lot of us. Even being our genuine, authentic, vulnerable, careful, repenting, believing selves can be the same kind of difficulty. But I, I want to I remind you, people can tell the difference. People can tell when you're just seeking out a relationship to gain something from them, when you're being artificially salty, right? You can tell the difference between real and artificial sweetener, right? You, you know real Coke versus, versus Diet Coke. You know regular ice cream mm, versus fat-free ice cream. You know sugar from Splenda. Folks can tell the difference between real and artificial love too. And so we are not looking to manufacture or pretend. We are looking to grow in Christ's love. We're not looking to become something we're not. We're looking to be changed into the image of Jesus. Not to be conformed into a pattern that's really difficult for us to do, but to be conformed into the likeness of the one who came in love, dwelt among us and showed us the very glory of God who lived, died, and rose for us, came near to sinners like us to redeem us. We want to be made in his image. We want to put off sin. We want to put on these characteristics of Jesus to do that, that we would have compelling lives, compelling speech, inviting other people to know him. Y'all, the, the trick and the strategy is not to gain some amazing new method, although methods can be helpful. It's to grow in Christ's love. In the gospel, we have the source of, of transforming love. We have Christ. We have the hope of glory. We have our Redeemer and friend, our Savior and Lord. We have Christ who is worthy of us, redeeming the time and going after those who don't know him. And so improving our gospel walk and our gospel talk among non-Christians starts with Christ. It starts with genuine love that's born from the cross. It starts with God so loved the world that he sent Jesus to redeem and make me new despite who I was and what I've done. He loved me and sent Christ to redeem me. Jesus loved and came near to those who were far from God with the message of reconciliation and now by his grace to spread his fame, he sends us with that same message of reconciliation. And so if we want to live compelling lives, then we want to live lives that look like Jesus. And that is what he gives us in Colossians 3. Putting off sin, putting on compassion, kindness, meekness, humility, patience, forbearance, forgiveness, and love. I'm not kidding. We should just stay there for the rest of whatever time we have together. Putting those things on in the everyday stuff of life is how we demonstrate how wonderful and transforming the power of Jesus is. As we're patient, we're, we wouldn't otherwise be patient. 
as we're forgiving because we've been forgiven and reconciled to, to God, as we're meek and humble after the way of our meek and humble Savior. That's what makes our lives compelling. Not that we're naturally interesting or the life of the party, but that we have Christ in us. We're living with the hope of Jesus in us. And so we get to go in his name. We get to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time that he's given us with speech that is always gracious, compelling and seasoned with salt so that we would know how we ought to answer each person. As we respond to this word, our our hope is that God would sustain us in this work of making Christ known. And so as we respond to the word in song, we want to pray that very thing, that, that God would enamor us with Jesus, make us more like him, and then open our eyes as he is sending us to spread his fame. We know that as we respond to the word this morning, that we are those who come empty-handed, who are not gaining from God because of what we've given or the potential that we have to give. And so we see that same picture in communion. In just a minute, after we begin to sing, we can make our way to one of the two communion tables. There's one on each side. And as we come to the table, we're, we're welcome to come if we are repenting and believing the gospel. We're a member of, of this or a like-minded gospel preaching local church, then we can come to that table empty-handed and pick up these things that represent for us the broken body and shed blood of our Lord Jesus. And in this act of faith, we are saying, I am not sustaining myself. I am not satisfying myself. I need Jesus to sustain me, to satisfy me. And so we come to the table in that hope. So I'd invite you to pick up the elements as we sing and return with those to your seat, and then I'll come in just a minute and lead us in the supper. Father, we ask that you would um, change us by the reading, believing, the hearing of your word. Specifically, Lord, making us into the image of our gracious Christ, the ruling king of all the universe who, who took on flesh and dwelt among us in weakness, who redeems and satisfies and sustains us and who sends us with that same message of reconciliation and redemption. Lord, give us boldness, give us courage, give us hearts that know Christ well, that love him more and more, and then send us to live lives that are compelling, speech that's compelling, to invite others to be found in him. God, I pray that the result of our time together would be bold witness for the sake of the gospel, that we would have lives that look like Jesus as we invite others to follow him. We pray this in the expectation that the Holy Spirit